Welcome to Transforming Medical Communications, a podcast by MedCom's experts. We share medical communications insights and advice from the best and brightest in the industry to find out what they're doing to push our industry forward. Here's your host, Wesley Portages. Welcome to the Transforming Medical Communications podcast. I'm your host, Wesley Portuguese, and with me today is Drew Proven. He is an expert hematologist who has dedicated his life to helping patients suffering from ITP. With a distinguished career that delves deep into clinical hematology and the art of effective communication, Drew has seamlessly blended his roles from being an eminent hematologist at the Queen Mary University of London to authoring books on medical presentations and creating scientific art. Renowned for his dedication to improving the landscape of medical presentations and his specialized expertise in immune thrombocytopenia, Drew exemplifies the essence of a trailblazer in both medical practice and scientific communication. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here today. As you know, we're active in the medical communication space and a lot of the work we do on a daily basis is all about creating content for healthcare professionals like yourself. So it's actually great to talk with you today and hear about your perspectives and hear the other side. But before we get into that, could you talk us a little bit through your journey from studying molecular biology to becoming a prominent hematologist and ITP expert? Mm, Yes, thank you. Well, yes, as you say, I did molecular biology as my first degree. I didn't go to medical school initially. And then once I graduated in molecular biology, I got into medical school and obviously I did my usual training. And then I think it's because my background, even before I did molecular biology, I worked in molecular genetics after school. and I became really quite obsessed by molecules and the way they interact and everything molecular to me was really fascinating. So I tried to keep that going through my medical career. I think that's probably why I ended up in hematology. And one of my mentors way back was Professor Sir David Weatherall, who founded the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine in Oxford. And he was the first person to describe thalassemia at the molecular level and show why the mutations within the globin genes cause the syndromes that we see as thalassemia. And he advised me not to do medical oncology, which is where I was heading but said the hematology was much more established and would satisfy my needs, and he was absolutely right. I think hematology is probably the first medical specialty to embrace molecular techniques in terms of working out what's happening at the molecular level, sickle cell disease, thalassemia, the leukemias, and many other disorders, and then using these to develop therapeutics. So Hematology is intellectually very fascinating and it's been a fantastic career for me so far. Wow, what a beautiful story. I always really like it to hear what motivated people to take a certain direction. And it sounds like you had some great guidance in the past as well from Dr. Wetterall to get there. Now, I also know you have given hundreds of uh, lectures and presentations. You even uh, wrote a book around giving presentations for medical professionals. So what would you say are the most crucial aspects that your peers or colleagues might overlook or maybe undervalue when it comes to effectively presenting scientific information? Yeah, that's a good point. I've written three books in total, one on public speaking and two on presentation design and just how to go about preparing and delivering a talk. And this all stemmed from my early years as a junior doctor and then even a junior consultant, senior doctor, if you like, a junior senior, where I had to do lots of lectures and they weren't terribly good because I was just copying the bosses. I was copying my elders who were giving talks and I saw how they did it and that seemed to be the way you do it. But it was very unsatisfying for me as a person delivering the talk 
And also, having been in the audience, it's very unsatisfying to listen to the majority of medical presentations. I would say, and my colleagues would probably be annoyed, but I think most presentations given by physicians or surgeons are pretty boring. And I think it's because people don't care enough about the audience. I think they feel almost a sense of entitlement. You know, I'm very senior, I'm qualified, I know much more than you, and I'm just going to talk to you and you're going to love it. The problem is, as an audience member, most of them don't love it and they don't remember you and they don't remember what you said. And I decided just to always rip up the rule book and start from the beginning and say, you know, what is it that I do badly and what can I do better? How can I engage people more? How can I make them actually listen to me and not sort of be on their phones or doing something else? I want their full attention the whole time I'm talking. And that's what I did. I went right back to basics and stripped everything back of all the glitz and glamour of PowerPoint presentations and all the fancy backgrounds and animations, everything goes. And so I reduced everything to a very basic level because I'm a fairly simple kind of guy in a way. I like simplicity rather than complexity. And I think this works beautifully in presentations. And the more data heavy your presentation is, and the more information you're trying to give the audience, I think the simpler you have to make it. Keep everything in small, tiny chunks and deliver them in a way that they can actually understand at the time. Don't let them read your slides. So keep the slides very simple, very few words. Go heavy on the graphics. Make everything big, as big as you can. And that's very different to my peers. I mean, I've sat through hundreds of talks. And there are very few that I can say, wow, that was amazing. Just look at, you know, that presentation, the delivery was great. The slides were just, you know, knockout. Hardly ever happens, which is a shame because we're surrounded by really great graphics and TV commercials and all these ads and magazines. And they don't overburden us with information. They keep it simple, a few words, big picture, and you just get the message. And doctors were not trained to do this. I think if you ever suggest to people that they change their style, they get slightly annoyed because they know them. I know they know their stuff. I know they're fantastic. And lots of these guys are, I mean, I look up to all of them and they're just wonderful, but they just can't get me excited enough <laughs> to remember what they've said, which is depressing. All that time and effort and money spent on this and the net gain for the audience is minimal. And I think that has to change. And I think it needs just reform of the way that they start and put the presentation together and also what they say. There's all these other bad habits as well, like looking at your slides rather than looking at the people. Many people do that because they're nervous and the words are there and that's a prop. But if you know your material, if you really know your subject, you don't need to see the slides. You don't need to read the words. You just know it. So that's kind of where I came from. It was having done it badly for a while and being embarrassed myself. I think I had self-awareness. That's the problem. <laughs> I have some insights into my own deficiencies which my peers, they have no deficiencies, of course, but their talks are terrible. They're terrible. Yeah. Well, it sounds like music to my ears because I hear you basically saying you should think about your audience, not about yourself. You should try to make the complex simple by visualizing things where you can. And the knowledge is you as a presenter. So your PowerPoint presentation may help you communicating complex data, but as a visual aid, it should help you, not the other way around. I really like that. And one other thing that you said, I think is also really crucial. You said they weren't trained on this. And I think that's a big thing, right? Like it's a lot to be expected. Becoming a physician on its own is quite a heavy journey, right? And lots of things to learn and very complex. And indeed, I feel with the changing landscape of information to be shared and to give you an indication when I said changing landscape, I saw this study some time ago where they said that the attention span has reduced over the last 20 years from 50 to 8 seconds 
right? So we're in an information world where we're overloaded all the time through every single channel. And there are so many more channels too. So I think it's actually important that some more education be done. And therefore the books that you produce as well are, are very important, I think. And I would recommend anyone who's presenting in this area to look those up and take some guidance from it. Now, more recently, you have actually also pursued more medical illustration and art. Actually, the beautiful dopamine molecule here behind me is part of your collection. So what inspired you to take this more creative direction? I think even as a child, I was creative, but science and medical school, I think a lot of the creativity is stifled for us, we haven't got time to explore art and design or things like that. So I think in my position now, because I'm semi-retired, I've got a lot more time. We had the pandemic, that gave me a lot more time. And I've done my own illustrations for textbooks for quite some time now, but I wasn't a great illustrator. But during the pandemic, I trained in Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator, Photoshop, Adobe InDesign, all the standard typesetting and design tools in publishing. So I became very proficient with illustration and I did even more illustrations for my own lectures and my colleagues. They would give a talk and I would have their slides and I would send them back their illustrations redrawn, which they love because I gave them clarity, which they missed originally. And then I got quite a number of commissions from pharmaceutical companies actually, who were doing review publications on various molecules and they wanted between four and six images per publication, per peer-reviewed paper, graphs, molecular interactions, things like that. And so I do these regularly. So I love creating beautiful imagery, again, in science, and again, going for simplicity, not complexity, keep the typography really crisp and nothing redundant, nothing that doesn't need to be there in the graphics. Then I started playing around with various other techniques, really, and the molecule you've got behind you there, I think it's dopamine, it was one, I started playing with some chemistry programs where I could either create a molecule from scratch by building the atoms and the bonds, or I could download from PubChem, which is a public database of molecules, that file, and then manipulate it myself, and then take it into various programs, and I could make it look like halftone, which yours has got lots of dots on it, which is a halftone pattern, and also give them the atoms really outrageous colors like purples and greens, which aren't there in the traditional color scheme for the molecules. And so I do space filling molecules, which you have behind you. I do ball and stick molecules for some structures and they get printed onto paper or metal or cups behind me, as you can see, and small metal prints and even phone cases, like my own iPhone case. I'm just fascinated by more the topography of these molecules. I'm not talking macro molecules. I'm talking tiny molecules, as small as water. Even the water molecule I've turned into art in various forms, and it's, you know, you don't get much, well, you can go to hydrogen or oxygen alone. But tiny little molecules, if you give them great color, they just stand out and they just look amazing for something so boring. I'm really trying to get my colleagues and friends and anyone else who will look, I'm trying to get them really excited by chemistry, by the structure. And people say, oh, I didn't, is that what vitamin D looks like? I had no idea. Is that what glucose looks like? Yeah, absolutely. That's what glucose looks like. People see a molecule or caffeine. I've got caffeine hanging up in my lounge as a 3D model hanging up. People say, what is that? And I say, it's caffeine because I love coffee. I drink a lot of coffee, so caffeine. And also holding them, if you print them in three dimensions as well, holding things like aspirin or paracetamol in your hand, you think, I oh got this, the actual tiny little thing. And if you change one atom, it becomes something else completely. 
So I think the simplicity of nature and the complexity of nature and turning it into an art form that people can appreciate, whether you like chemistry or not, whether you're interested in the structure or not, it just looks visually fun. But for the real chemists, they understand, they will know straight away what I'm trying to achieve. So I'm just representing basic molecules in a much more fun and alternative way, really, to try and get people excited, which is what I try to do with all my teaching and all my lectures. I'm trying to get people engaged. I want people to really rethink about what they know. And if I'm not getting through to you, if you don't remember what I'm saying, if you don't understand why I'm telling you this, then I've failed in a way. If you don't come away from one of my talks excited, then I've failed. And I set that standard for myself for every talk now. And I want good feedback. I want good engagement. I want memorability. And that's the whole thing because we're all meant to be learning. I want them to learn. I don't want them to then go back and have to look at my handout. I don't even do handouts. I don't want a handout. That's not the, who cares about a handout? You should be listening to me, not looking at words on a page. What I'm saying is more important than the handout in a way, because it's personal. Every time I give a talk, I do it as if I'm having a conversation with a person, not standing in front of a thousand people. I make it very conversational. And that's quite difficult to do initially. I think if you've got nerves and you're, you're anxious, it's really hard to sort of relax into a lecture and give a, almost sitting in an armchair with a pipe and talking to someone and just not rambling, but giving them my thoughts. But that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to let you know my thought processes. I don't use jargon. I try to avoid jargon. I try to avoid abbreviations. I try and make sure that they're with me. I look at faces and are they asleep or awake? So the art is just me presenting you with something which could be boring in a textbook, but in a much more fun way. And you have it on your wall and it gives you a little color. I mean, it's crazy colors, but the colors and I like it. Yeah, I really like that. You know, we're talking about art here, but in a way, I think what you're really saying here is that the role of design is so important in engaging your audience. And indeed, some of the topics we need to communicate about in this industry can be pretty dry and difficult. But by adding color, like literally or figuratively, you change so much for the audience consuming the information. And I think it's a beautiful analogy, actually, that we have here about that. I would like to dive a little bit into your experience as a practicing physician around the communications from pharmaceutical companies. A lot of our listeners are working in pharmaceutical companies, mainly in the medical affairs area, and engage in creating content for people like you. So there's no one better to ask these questions to. And I'm actually going to start with kind of a quote from a report from McKinsey. So McKinsey brought out this report. It's about engaging and educating physicians in a digital world. And what the report says is that 81% of the physicians are dissatisfied with their interactions with pharmaceutical companies. And they say this is mostly due to a perceived lack of personalized and relevant content. And I'm really curious to your perspective, having been there or being there, what is your view on this statement? Yeah, that is quite interesting. And of course, the people we're talking about would be representatives of the company who are then visiting physicians in their office, I guess, to talk about either something new or their therapy or even existing therapies. Or it could be materials, right? When you go to a conference and you walk up to the medical booth and you see some kind of screen or someone gives you some kind of presentation. Mm, well, those two settings are quite different. The medical booth is different because they don't know me and so they won't be able to tailor what they say to me because they don't know my background, for example, that I'm an expert in something or I know very little. So they have to give me something probably more, slightly more generic. If they're coming to see me in my office, if I were a general hematologist, say, in a district general hospital who wasn't an expert in anything particularly, then I would quite like to hear broadly about the area and the therapeutics and the pros and cons of treatment, etc., and be able to ask general questions. 
But if you know something about the subject, if someone comes to see me, then I don't want to have a generic lecture about ITP or therapies. You know, don't bore me with that because I lecture on this. Don't try and tell me that because. But the people who are doing the visiting, the representatives, they have a job to do. They're expected to visit their various physicians on a regular basis, and I'm not sure how well primed they are before they see us. I think they know me, so they don't try to tell me simple things. If there's anything major, they will tell me, and that's fine. That's all I want to know. But I'm not sure how much they're primed in advance, but they do get to know their customer base. They do get to know the physicians. And so it should be tailored to the person I would have thought. You know, if it was a different representative each time who doesn't know any of the doctors, then they're going to give a stock interview or presentation because they don't know who they're talking to. Once that representative's been to that hospital two or three times, they know the doctors and say, they know I'm not going to bore him with this because he knows this, but I might tell him about this. So they should be tailoring it to us specifically. I don't know why they're not. I'm not really fully clued in with the logistics of what happens at their base before they go to see their various customers that they have to see what they're told in advance. How about other channels, Drew? Like if you would go online, maybe to some kind of educational website. As an industry, we're creating a lot of content, right? And we kind of want to know more about the impact of it. Like how effective is it beyond maybe the MSL visiting you, right? But also just in general, all the communications that are out there. Well, I've worked with a number of companies who develop websites based around my disease area. And one was called like an ITP village. And it was meant to be, there are various things you can click on. You can see literature or you can see the latest studies, or you can see more patient orientated information. Well, I use the internet. I do searches for papers and reviews. I use a database. I use bookends on the Mac or you can use EndNote. Of course, I use the internet to find publications. And I often do put a search into Google for something, you know, what the latest data on whatever drug in ITP, then I'll copy the papers and then I'll go and get the papers from blood or whichever journal it is. So in that sense, I do use the internet, of course. Yeah, I understand. How about virtual meetings where you don't have to travel, but you still have the interactivity, but it's online? I've done many. I mean, during the pandemic, I think in 2020, I did 80, 80 lectures online, either Zoom or Teams, and then very similar in 2021. I did many. As a speaker, of course, it's very convenient. I don't have to go to an airport. It's easy. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Let's pivot a little bit towards medical presentations in general. You already spoke a little bit about like most presentations are boring, which piqued my interest, of course. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I mean, how long have we sat through presentations? Ever since I was a very junior doctor, I've sat through many, many case presentations. And then I started going to conferences. And I loved seeing the big stars on stage. It was like seeing some big movie star these people wrote the textbooks and there they are on stage. But then I found it pretty dry, really. And I think it's good things have got better as technology advances. But I think we went through a period of simplicity, like easy slides and very boring. And then it got really super complex and people were trying to use all these fancy transitions and glitzy things to make it even more dramatic. The problem is it just failed. It just looked absolutely terrible. I don't know if you remember, I remember one person, one of my colleagues who shall remain nameless, who happened he loved this typewriter effect for his slides so the words appear one lecture at a time and made that type was like oh wait after you've done about two or three slides like please stop make it stop <laughs> make it stop every slide so anyway thankfully microsoft in their wisdom seemed to have removed those templates which is very nice but again it's like microsoft versus apple i mean i'm a real apple aficionado i love apple for its simplicity and microsoft seems to love to complicate things look at word and all the like gazillion features 
95% wish interviews. So my experience is having sat through many talks, I have to sit through them. If I'm in the room, I'm really forced to. And if I'm in the front row, I've really got to sleep attentive and pretend I'm interested. But really, I keep thinking, God, why couldn't you just make that into two slides? Why have you got all these words there? So in my head, I'm rewriting all their slides. And I've rewritten people's slides for them occasionally, but it doesn't go down all that well. It's not well received if I rewrite their slides. I make them much more just graphically nicer, just aesthetically nicer, because I think it's nicer. So if I've got to look at this thing, at least make me look at something nice, not something ugly. Why do I have to stare at ugly stuff on a screen for three hours? So anyway, because I like graphic design, I like simplicity, I like style, and I think about the type I use, I think about the size of the font, I think about the background, I think about the best imagery. And so I put a lot of effort into what I do and no one else seems to do that. Well, very few people seem to do that. For some reason, I don't know why, even though they watch me, I wish they would copy me. <laughs> and I have done training. I've done training. Pharma companies have used me to train my peers, other consultants. Perhaps it's a hemophilia meeting. So they'll have talks all day on hemophilia. And then I'll give them a talk on how to give a talk and how to do slides. And later they say, God, you're right. You're right. I never thought of that. And I, yeah, I'm going to start doing that. And I'm like, brilliant, brilliant. Do it. <laughs> do it. You know, once you point out to them, they, they then go, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. And I say, look, why have you got like six flow cytometry images or 10 on a page? We can't read them. Why can't they have a slide on their own? You're not limited. There's no rationing of slides. Just give each image one slide. Why not? What's wrong with that? There is a talk. There was a TED talk. And this guy talked for 10 minutes and he had 200 slides. I'm not kidding. 200 slides. Each slide had hardly anything on it. And he got through 200 slides and it wasn't boring. So people get, oh no, one slide per minute and I have to cram everything on. And But that just gives you a very, very boring, dry talk, which could otherwise be quite fantastic. You know, you've got great data. It's a great study. You know, it was really well constructed. So why am I not excited? Because you haven't got me excited because you bored me for an hour. That's why. And I want to forget it. Now, we've been talking a lot about the role of design in creating strong slides, but I also know that, just like me, you're an advocate for storytelling in medical presentations. So could you maybe share a little bit on how this changed your approach to your own lectures? Yeah, I think storytelling has been so successful. The best speakers, I'm not necessarily in medicine, but the best presenters usually set the scene with something that we have this disease, blah, 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 the therapies we've got are not particularly great. And then so the question is like what do we then lead them through you know that's very interesting and maybe we need to look at this area and then so we develop this and from that came this therapy and then from that leads to the data you think oh okay well it seems to work and then from that you lead to the case presentations or show that they're tolerable effective and the outcomes are good and then give a very simple punchy conclusion if you can at the end but lead them through let them know there's it's not just in a vacuum, this talk I'm giving you is, you know, it has to be part of something. It's part of an unmet need. We need more therapies. We need therapies that are not immunosuppressive. You know, what could we do about that? Is there anything on the horizon? Well, let's walk through it. Let's have a look at what is being developed. So you have to almost set, I mean, I don't always do this, but you should have some kind of problem. And I often start off by saying one of my talks is like the, the ITP, for example, is a disease that we can't diagnose and we don't understand what's happening to the patient and we don't know how to treat it. We don't know how to diagnose it and we don't even know how to treat it. And that's crazy for any disease. How many diseases have no diagnostic test and nobody really knows what the best treatment is in this day and age? So that gets them thinking, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then you can lead them through algorithms or I take them through my thinking, you know, and the way I think therapy should go and for us to do no harm. 
try and avoid toxicity, go for drugs which are much less toxic but effective, etc. So again, you've got to have some kind of hook at the beginning. If you can, you know, this is a problem. Or as you said, 81% of people who have interactions with pharma feel dissatisfied. Well, that's it. Well, that's a problem, right? So what are we going to do about it? Then take them through the story. Start off with that as your basic slide, not just saying that interactions with pharmaceutical companies are bloody, you know, that's really boring. I know that, I know that. And then you say, if you say that most of us are unsatisfied or dissatisfied, you think, yeah, actually that's right. That's a bad problem. So what can we do? What's the solution? So I've had my fair share of discussions about storytelling in medical communications where I was met perhaps by, I guess, a little bit of pushback, right? Where people would say like, well, Wesley, storytelling, I don't think we can use that in science because it is not scientific. It hurts the scientific integrity. And I completely oppose that opinion, right? But I'm curious what your view is on that. How would you explain to a peer if someone would say that to you? How would you explain to them why that isn't the case and how it actually works? I think they're probably misinterpreting the term storytelling. It sounds kind of like childish in a way. But I remember going back to my mentor, David Weatherall, who elucidated the whole molecular basis of thalassemia. His talks always begin with this kind of pose a question and then tell the story through it. Like, why is it that some people with this type of disease have a severe disease and others do not? You know, what could be going on? We did not know what this was. And then he'll say, well, when I was in the army in Singapore and blah, 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 and then I saw these patients. And then he talked with the clinical scenarios going back to the 1950s when he was in the war or in the army, and then how he then brought the samples back to the United Kingdom and then analyzed them. So it's a really interesting story. Put it in context. This is personal to him because he works on it in a different country, brought the samples home. He cared about the population that he was working with. He was puzzled by the phenotypes of the people who all seem to have on paper the same disease, but yet phenotypically they were so different. Why were they different? And then he unraveled the molecular basis of that. And then that was the punchline at the end of his talk. So that's very much storytelling. And if you can bring in anything personal as well, you know, I saw a patient last week who had blah, 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 and, and that this is what we did. And people latch onto that. That's much better than something academic and perhaps theoretical. We want real cases, real people, real problems real solutions. Make it sort of, so I feel I could have been that person. I could have been my patient in a way, or I might be in that position the same as him if I'd been that. So storytelling is just a way of keeping people entertained while you give them quite complex information. Because if you launch straight into the genetics of some of these diseases and then look at sequencing and, and all the other, and people just like, what's that? And go, he's moved on to the next slide. And I can't remember what was in that one. And why is they telling me this? Why is it relevant? Well, let me tell you, give them the context and then tell a story around that. Usually with a problem and a solution, I think is the best way often in medicine. Yeah. So you're saying like create some contrast and make sure to include the so what factor. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if I'm telling you something and I want you to listen, it has to be worth their time. So what's in it for them? There has to be something in it for them. And I want something. I don't want to come out having listened to lots of words, but with zero impact. Say less to me, but make it really powerful and memorable. And I'll use that in my clinical practice. Or I'll go and look up your papers and then I'll read myself. You've really got me interested in this now. I want to learn a bit more. You've really whetted my appetite and I want more. Yeah, I like how you said that. So, Drew, we kind of stand, I guess, at the cusp of another transformation in our industry, right? When it comes to medical communications. And I know we've talked about digital a little bit and your view on that. But what do you expect for the future? Where do you think this is going? Younger physicians now, how do you think their presentations will look like 20 years from now? 
Well, yeah, they are quite different to us. I have a son who's 28. He's not a medic, but I know how they're not like me. They don't use books. So books are out of the way. <laughs> Forget books. They don't tend to print very much. They don't print. You know, I like PDFs. I print them. You know, I'm old. I like paper to do the learning. So they don't look at it. So everything has to be on a screen somewhere, either a phone or a tablet. And it has to be in little bite-sized chunks. You mentioned the attention to span of audiences having got quite short. And nowadays we're like, if something doesn't load within about one and a half seconds, then you go somewhere else. And that's the cruel reality of the computing world is if I want to look something up, if it doesn't load straight away, I'm not going to wait, you know, like 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, I'm onto something else. And you know, it's like flicking through Instagram or Facebook. They're going to want something really visually great that they get straight away without having to sit down and read for an hour. They haven't got the patience. They're not trained. I think schooling and in university is different now. They don't write essays in an exam for hours like we used to do with a paper and a pen. This is everything's all different. It's all terribly compact and little chunks and quick, quick, quick. And yes, speed is of the essence, but clarity has to be there. So it has to be something visual that they get almost within one image. You know, pictures worth a thousand words. Give them a picture that's encapsulated the whole thing and then I've got it. Don't make them read an essay because they won't read an essay. They just get bored within the first couple of lines. I say, I'm bored. They'll do something else. So I don't know which way they're going. And I've seen some of the juniors. I've been to some conferences where juniors give talks. And I was actually impressed with them because they're much better than we were. And they're also much better than the seniors because their talks are actually much clearer. And they seem to think in a different way to us, which is maybe it's a good sign. Maybe the presentations of the future will be better than my generation, who are very analog and old textbooky and from the overhead projector era, which we then transferred onto PowerPoint. They don't think that way because they don't have the overhead projector mentality that we had with the colored pens. Do you remember those or the things on a roll? I've been through all of those. I've been through every single technology apart from carving and stone. I'm you know, not that old. But they seem to have a different way of putting stuff together because their brains probably think in a different way. They think in a much faster punchier, give you a little bite size, which I quite like. I'm not saying they all do that, but I've seen quite a number of junior presentations that I was thinking, oh God, this is going to be terrible. I think actually that was pretty good. I was quite impressed. So kind of the headlines you see are concise, short form content, more visualized than before, communicating through design and images and illustrations. Animation will have to come in much more to presentations than at the present, because myself and my peers, we're not good animators. I mean, I'm too old. To, I've tried to use motion type apps. They're really complicated, but these guys are much younger. They'll pick up much faster. And there are lots of free products around online, lots of modeling things you can use if you've got the time and the patience to do the receptor and the drug. So I think pharma companies, I've seen some great animations from pharma companies showing how a molecule will interact and then cause a downstream effect. And I think a good animation done by proper animator film, animation film, that's really compelling. And I think that's one really great way to get across lots of complex information. So I think I'd like to see a lot more animation. I expect we'll see a lot more animation. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we're heading towards the closing of today's episode. But before we do so, if people would like to connect with you, see your books or have a look at your website with your art, where should they go? Well, the easiest one to do is just put my name into Google because everything comes up on there. My website, my art is there. There's lots of YouTube lectures from me on ITP, pretty much everything about me. I can't give you one site because it's on many different sites. The books, of course, are all on Amazon. Again, just search my name, Drew Proven, and they all come up and you'll see the latest books and you know, medical and presentation and the art book as well. They're all on there, all on Amazon. 
quite a number of them are Apple Books and Kindle as well. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, that's good to know. I was wondering, you shared a lot of your experience with us today here. Is there any pivotal principle, an anecdote or some kind of inspiration that has served well as a compass in your endeavors and which might inspire us here in the industry? Well, I mean, I've made many good friends over the years, both in industry and outside of industry. And don't forget, I used to work in industry as well. I worked in industry for a while. So I've made many really good friends. And I think the best thing to do is to, I think number one is stay humble, because even though you are professor, so whoever, it doesn't really matter. You're still a human being and the guys you interact with are human beings. And I think the more personal and the more humble you are, then you get much more from people. People respect you more rather say, excuse me, I am, you know, do you know who I am? I'm very senior. Don't tell me, don't bother me. Have time for everyone really. And listen and be a good listener. Try to be a listener as well, irrespective of, of whether you know it or not. And sometimes I know it can be irritating, but try and be a good listener. And that makes you a better communicator. If you actually listen to our pharma colleagues, they know a lot. They do know a lot. But I think they do come up against the, not the abrasion of doctors, but I think doctors sometimes feel, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the medical liaison person or the drug rep, you know, so don't patronize me about that. I know it. Well, you don't know everything, actually. They know a lot. They know more than you, but they're not doctors. And so I hate, I said to you right at the beginning before we started, I'm really not status orientated. I don't care who anyone is how high, low, whatever, I treat everyone the same. And when I give talks, I treat the audiences as friends. Even if I don't know most of them, I still think of them as my friends in the audience and they're listening to me and I'm really grateful that they're there and I hope they get something from it. And that keeps me happy if they enjoy it and if they learn something, then I'm very happy. So I think just stay humble and keep everything simple. Please don't overcomplicate life in general and don't overcomplicate your presentations in particular. <laughs> I like that little note at the end. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was uh, really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being on the Transforming Medical Communications podcast. You have really shared some insightful information here today. So thank you so much again. No, you're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Transforming Medical Communications is brought to you by MedCom's experts. To find out more about MedCom's experts and how we create some of the most cutting edge medical communications programs anywhere in the world, visit www.medcoms-experts.com. And then make sure to search for Transforming Medical Communications in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at MedCom's Experts, thanks for listening.